Good morning and welcome to Black Book Talk, Oregon's longest running broadcast devoted to books by and about African-Americans. Today we're doing a special sampler edition featuring outtakes from a few of the many interviews we've done over the past 26 years. Yes, we, that's Emma Jackson Ford, O.B. Hill and I, Patricia Welch, have been introducing cable listeners to black literature for over a quarter century and we couldn't have done it without your support of KBOO. So we encourage you to support the KBOO Fall Membership Drive. The goal is $55,000. You can help us reach it by going to kboo.fm slash give or texting KBOO to 44321. It only takes a minute, but the benefits are so long lasting. Enjoy today's program. On February 5th, 2003, Patricia Hill Welch interviewed Ernest Gaines for his book, A Lesson Before Dying. It was our first citywide Everybody Reads book. And now I have the great honor of interviewing Ernest J. Gaines on KBOO, Portland's community radio station. We're joined today by a community, by a studio audience who will be submitting questions for Mr. Gaines, and I'll read them in the second part of the show. Ernest J. Gaines, welcome to Portland. Thank you, ma'am. Okay. <clears throat> Though this is Portland's first Everybody Reads program, it's not your, every, your first one. Your book has been chosen as the book that everyone in town will be reading in a number of cities. Can you tell us what that was like the first time for an author to know that a whole community was reading your book, that it was that well thought of, and, and what it's like now, after you've done this many times. Well, you know, a writer never knows what's gonna to happen to his book. Once he writes a book, he, he hopes that the book is published, and after it's published, he hopes that it's reviewed, and then it's, after that's reviewed, he hopes that the, um, uh, the public buys the book. But um, with a lesson, um, it's, it, 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 so many things happen. For example, Oprah picked up the book uh, after um, after it been out there about three or four years, and then uh, Seattle uh, started the uh, One City One Read um, uh, discussion of of, of, a, of a book. Um, I don't think any other writer has have had this experience. Uh, in the history of our country, um, that where a city just uh, cities all over the country are picking up that one book and having all the people to uh, to come and read it, regardless of who they are. Book clubs are made up of um, black or white or Asian or whatever, and uh, youth and uh, aged and church members and all these groups are reading that book. So it's just a fantastic thing for any to happen to any writer. I'm lucky. I, they, I'm one of the ones they, that uh, my book that that my book was chosen. I've been asked why, and I keep asking myself why as well. Do you take it for granted now? That what? That that you will be chosen. That maybe once a year, some city will call you out and say, "We are doing your book." Oh well, no! Oh no! I just hope uh, someone asked me that last night, and I said, "I hope there there are about fifty thousand writers out there, and I I hope that you will ask that person uh, next time." to um, discuss uh, a book of his. 
Okay, and I do want to mention that I have, we all have lots of questions, but some of my questions are coming from Jefferson High School. Uh, Jennifer Duncan's 10th grade class visited us and picked up their books and said that they would share some of their questions. So if I ask you a question that comes from that class, I want to let you know that. And as a matter of fact, uh, the second one, well, first I'll just say, tell us a little bit about lesson for the 15 people in town who might not be familiar with the plot. Would you give us a little synopsis and then just tell us what inspired you to write the book because that's what Theo from Jefferson High School wants to know. Um, what is the first part okay, of the first part, well, Okay, first part is just a brief synopsis of the oh, plot yeah. so in, right, yeah, in case yeah. there's somebody out there that doesn't. All right, yeah. Well, it's about a young man who's been sentenced to, um, who was in, with two other guys who robbed, uh, um, not robbed a store, but went to a, a liquor store. And uh, the, um, the owner of the store is killed, and two of those young men are killed. And this one young man, Jefferson, had nothing to do with it, but he was with there at the time. And he's uh, arrested, tried. At his trial, he's compared to an animal, to a an hog, by the, uh, his defense attorney to those people, to this jury, to show them what kind of person he was. He, 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 he did not have the, according to this guy, the uh, attorney, this Jefferson does not have the intelligence uh, of, of, um, to, to have committed uh, this crime. Uh, and he's, he compares him to, to an animal. He, but still he was t he's, um, arrested and he's put into prison and uh, he's been sentenced to be executed because the jury, this is back in the 40s in the South, Louisiana, the jury just, uh, a, a, white man, a white man was killed. So um, this, 12, uh, this jury made up 12 white men because at that time in, in the South, uh, only white men served on juries, um, sentenced him to die. Um, his um, Jefferson's godmother, whom we call Nanan in Louisiana, um, uh, uh, approaches the, uh, the young school teacher on the campus, I mean on the, uh, on the plantation, and she wishes, wants him to visit Jefferson in the jail because now Jefferson has begun to act like the animal that, this, that is so um, described. So uh, she wishes that he would, this young teacher, visit him and some way make him realize that he's not an animal, but that he's a man before he dies. She knows he's gonna die, but she wishes that he dies as a, um, as a man and not as the animal as, he's, as he was described in the, um, in the uh, courtroom. So this is uh, sort of a, something about the synopsis of the plot. Of it. On September 1st, 2008, we interviewed Felicia Pride. Her book, The Message, 100 Life Lessons from Hip Hop's Greatest Songs. We don't review a lot of books about music, but that year we thought with hip hop being 30 years old, we should do some recognition. Now, some people would think it was strange that, that young black women are embracing hip hop just because there seems, there's a, a segment of hip hop that seems, well, frankly, misogynistic. And so I'm just wondering, um, you know, is, do you, how do you, uh, what do you think of that? Do you think it's valid? Um, 
you know. I mean, well, young black women and young Latino women were there from the beginning. You know, we were B girls. We were throwing parties alongside cool. What, excuse me. We what is a B girl? What is a, a B girl? Is a break there? Is it B B girl or B boy? Starts, stands for breaking breaking boy or breaking girl and it's Thank for you. break dancing <laughs> okay so there were b-girls who were break dancing i mean you can now google b-girls there's international b-girl conferences okay. where girls come together but we were there for the beginning so it makes sense that we you know embraced it and continue to embrace it i mean but the misogynistic question is you know hip-hop the misogyny in hip-hop speaks to the misogyny in larger culture um and one thing that i know a lot of myself and female hip-hoppers are trying to do is trying to change that sort of face in hip-hop. We need to have women in hip-hop embracing hip-hop, but also challenging it. We also need women in hip-hop to usher in more images beyond those that we see on BET, beyond those that we see on MTV, saying you can love hip-hop, but you don't necessarily have to be half-dressed. You don't necessarily have to be, you know, accept to be disrespected. So there's a need for women in hip-hop to definitely... Um, not only love it, but challenge it, and that's what we do. That's just like the same sort of attitude that, you know, one of my favorite writers, Kim McLaren, says, I love America enough to challenge her. I love hip-hop enough to challenge her. And hip-hop is, is definitely, you know, if you want to look into an eye on American culture, you can look through hip-hop. It's all there, the violence, the misogyny, the same things that we deal with in American society, we deal with in hip-hop. You're absolutely correct. Um, want to make sure that people here you reading from your work. Uh, I, I'm trying to think. I think that we read a little bit. I read a little bit last month, but I don't remember exactly what. Uh, but is there some passage, introduction or whatever, from your book that you'd like to read from the message so people can hear it in your voice? Sure. I would love to read from the first entry, which is called Express Yourself. It's based on um, the song Express Yourself by NWA, and it kind of gives a little bit more insight into why I have this connection with hip-hop. And I chose to include an N.W.A. song, and I tell people this all the time, because if a group like N.W.A. could make a meaningful song, anyone can. So all these groups <laughs> out here say they can't do it, they're lying. So here's just a, a tidbit. <clears throat> My lingual affair with wordplay, that sounds so deliciously dirty, began as a one-night stand with hip-hop music that morphed into a relationship I never expected. When I was younger, I was infatuated by infatuated by the witty and often complex rhymes of wordsmiths like Big Daddy Kane and Slick Rick. In a single-subject notebook, I would write down the lyrics to the dopest songs and practice the rhymes in the mirror. My fist was my mic. Without realizing it, I was developing a reverence for words. Meanwhile, in school, my teachers praised my writing. Coincidence? This is, what I, this is why I write. N.W.A.'s Express Yourself is what happens when gangsters leave the drugs, violence, and profanity at home and bring themselves, intellect intact, into the studio booth. A young Dr. Dre, an original member of the Compton crew that popularized an entire subgenre of rap music, comes from behind the production boards to tell the world that when you combine a subject and a predicate, a gangster who knows his grammar, and add a tight rhythm, the result might make you think. And I'll just skip a little bit ahead here. Hip-hop not only gave voice to the voiceless, but for this little brown girl, and I didn't know it then, the music was also an early introduction to, my, to a new personal narrative, the type that wasn't validated by my school studies. Stories that dripped from the mouths of kids who weren't old, white, or dead. Compton Cats, Brooklyn Babies, and Bronx Brothers were writing from their own perspective. People around the country were listening. Their words, thoughts, and ideas mattered. This was powerful to a little brown girl. This was powerful to many brown boys and girls. Skipping ahead a little bit. 
Hip-hop helped to embolden me with her confidence to write from my vantage point with the same audacity exuded by N.W.A. in the opening scenes of the Express Yourself video as they ripped through a full-size paper sign that reads, I Have a Dream. I've been opened up to write my truth uniquely and in my voice, black female hip-hop. I insert myself into public conversation. I found my mic, and I continue to rip it. This is why I write. On October 6, 2022, we interviewed New York Times bestselling author Kaylin Bayron about her book, The Vanquishers. This lighthearted vampire novel is directed to middle grade readers. Kaylin reads a passage from the book and Black Book Talk co-host Emma Ford shares a surprising childhood memory in this following excerpt. Vampires are extinct. Everybody knows that. But some people just can't let the undead stay in their graves. It's been 20 years since the reaping, and our parents still won't buy store brand vampire repellent. I don't get it. There's a whole aisle full of this stuff. Cedric is looking at me like I have two heads. I hand him the flyer I'd snatched from the mail before my mom had a chance to toss it. On one side is a picture of a plastic spray bottle filled with a shimmering silver liquid and a label shaped like a garlic bulb. On the back are six or seven customer testimonials that say things like, as good as the recipe my grandmother used to make, and I'll never use another brand as long as I live. It's a vanquisher-approved repellent, I say. It's got to be legit, right? Cedric rolls his eyes and leans back, his elbows in the grass, his face tilted to the sky. Who is buying this stuff anymore? Vamps are dust. They've been dust for a long time. People need to get over it. He flicks the pedal of his bike with the toe of his sneaker. How could it be vanquisher-approved anyway? The vanquishers don't exist anymore either. You know that's not true, says Jules. They're still out there. They just don't vanquish anymore. They don't need to. They shrugged. Even before the reaping, vampires were almost completely extinct. And vanquisher approved doesn't really mean anything anyway. It's just something these companies say to get people's money. Cedric huffs. People out here are selling tap water with silver glitter in it. They're lucky there aren't any vampires around for real or they could get somebody killed with that fake stuff. He sits up and looks at Jules. You know what's actually legit? The repellent Lita makes herself. If a vamp got some of that on them, he whistles and shakes his head. It'd be over. Jules smiles wide. Her recipe is the real deal. Store brand doesn't even have actual silver in it. There are three kinds of people in San Antonio. People who buy their vampire repellent from the store, people who only make their own, and people who don't use any at all because they're confident the vanquishers wiped out the last hive of the undead. 20 years ago. I love this. When I was middle school or junior high, I had a friend that I thought was a vampire. I would have loved some of this, some of this liquid. So, because I, I keep thinking, <laughs> I don't want to do a sleepover with her. Don't want to spend the night at her house because her canines were so pronounced that I believe she was a vampire, but I didn't know how to tell. So when I first See? started this, I laughed. <laughs> <laughs> this was a story I would like to hear some more about, actually. Um, yeah. <laughs> so thank you for writing this. Is there like a moral or a hidden lesson, something for middle schoolers in this book? Yeah, you know, this story is... It's about, you know, it's a it's a scary story. It's vampires. It's all of that. But it really is, I think, at its core, it's a story about family. It's about the friendships that we 
make when we're in middle school and how important those are to us and how they feel like the world is kind of crashing down when they don't work out. And um, also how close those relationships can be. Because when I was in middle school, I had this group of friends who was like family. Um, our parents knew each other. Those were my aunties and uncles. We called each other cousins, but we weren't really cousins. It was kind of like this close kind of family relationship. I wanted to to have that at the center of this kind of scary story. But also, um, you know, I think it's it's about not having to continue to do things the way they've always been done. It's also about uh, learning to accept people who might be a little bit different than you. And yeah, it, it, has, it has threads of all of those, those very important kind of life lessons all wrapped up in this very kind of paranormal, scary story. On April 4th, 2023, we interviewed E. Ethelbert Miller, writer, poet, and literary activist. His album, Black Men Are Precious, was a 2023 Grammy nominee finalist for Best Spoken Word Poetry Album. This was the first year that this category existed. The Grammy ultimately went to Chicago poet Jay Ivey for his album, The Poet Who Sat By The Door. In the following excerpt, Ethelbert talks about the path to nomination and shares a reading of the title poem. This is the first year that the Grammys had the best spoken word poetry category. Give us a little background on how this came about, what your experience was like, how does one even come to their attention? Just what what that experience was well, like. Well, you can begin with the person who won the award. <laughs> you know, Ivy won the award for, for best spoken uh spoken word. I mean, he was the one that was lobbying for this category to be created. And so he should get all the credit. At one time, you said spoken word, you're up against Obama or Michelle Obama reading her, reciting her her, her, her memoir or something like that, spoken word. Okay. And you know, over the last you know few years, um, and when we talk about poetry, we're really talking about spoken word. We're talking about people who are incarcerated, you know, reciting their poems. Um, you talk about all the various uh, cafes and, and 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 places around the country in which young people are finding their voice, you know, getting up, you know, and doing slams and open mics and things of that sort. And so when you have the person like Ivy, you know, creating the category and 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 dealing with the fact that you're trying to convince the, the recording industry that this is an important yeah. genre, it's not easy. And I think what happens is that um, I'm glad he won. Uh, he might have been angry if he didn't win <laughs> because, you know, he came up with a category. And then I I, I look at it in terms of um, what happened to me is that it made people more aware of my work. Michael Jamal Warner, who was uh, also up for an award, yeah. was interviewed and they asked a question like, what do you think of all the other people who you're competing against? And he went down the list and he got to me, he said, I don't know, Brother Miller, man, but Brother Miller, man, Brother Miller, something else, man. You know, you know, he gave me, he gave me such a praise that my publisher said, can we use that as a blurb? <laughs> you know, because he was so, you know, he was discovering. And what happens is that, uh, and this is the Grammy. I'm in my 70s. If if I was 23, 24, the Grammy would really mean something, you know, I mean, in mm-hmm. terms in terms of that. But it does mean something in terms of my neighbors, you know, my neighbors like, you didn't tell me you wrote poetry. Because I, you know, I was on the news, you know. <laughs> so I'm like, like, so, so, and, and then what you realize that, and this gets a lot to do with how we live our lives. We live our lives, and then there's the other lives that we look at. So, you know, it's like, oh, man, you out there with Beyonce. Well, I ain't no Beyonce. <laughs> you know, I might have been close to Viola Davis for a few seats. But, you know, <laughs> but, but what I'm saying, we look at that. 
and we never think that anybody we know is part of that. Yes. You know, like I, I go to basketball games, but do I have the good seats like Spike Lee and Drake? No, I don't have the good those good seats. You know what I'm saying? I'm at the same game, but they look to you the different place. They interact with LeBron James and you know, they slap five and so and what happened for many people, even my own children, being not only for the great meant something to them. Like my whole daughter's law firm was like, That's your daddy? <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, before my 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 daughter was like, you remember that scene in Imitation Life where it's like, there, there's my daughter? No. <laughs> 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 you know, that little scene where it was like, we have no black children here. <laughs> you know, so my daughter's like, oh, they, no, they, my dad writes poetry? No, my dad doesn't write. <laughs> you see where I'm going well, those with people are very young. <laughs> go to the library, go to the Canopy, Canopy website and look up Imitation of Life. You probably need to see it <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> To appreciate this. <laughs> <laughs> it is a thing, you know. Well, on, on a serious note, it's so important. I, I know, I think there might have been 65 people uh, who competed the, the, the nomination. They knew about it. Uh, and five people were saying, How does one become nominated? Did you nominate yourself? Is no, I didn't nominate myself. No, what, I, I'm not. In fact, in fact, what happens, it, and this is what happens, is that there is, it, you're dealing with the recording industry. There is a lot of people vote, so you have to really begin to 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 get your vote out. You can be nominated, okay, but then you're going to have to get people to vote for you, okay. Ivy probably over the years has more contacts in the music industry than I do, okay. But the people who produced my, you know, uh, my 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 album, uh, compared to all, they've won Grammys. See, so what happens? In fact, they won a Grammy this past year in for like Latin music. So what happens is you got to look at who these producers are, okay. okay? And what happens is that, you know, I probably would not have been even considered if it hadn't been the fact that many, many years ago, uh, a person by the name of Doug Brinkley wrote the introduction to one of my books. You know, and Doug Brinkley, you might see him on TV. He's he's a presidential story on CNN. And what happens is that he's an expert in the civil rights movement. We met many, many years ago when he was running, he was in New Orleans, you know, running a magic bus, taking high school kids and teachers to key civil rights places, Memphis and Little Rock and places like that. So we've developed a friendship a long time ago. And so what happens is that when Kabir, who's won these nominees, you know, sees this new category, he says, well, let me compete, find if I can compete for that for that category. And so he asked Doug Brinkley for a reference. That's how I get the reference. And here's the poet reading, Black Men Are Precious. Black men are precious. Black men, black friends having strokes. Black men younger than me. Good men with bad hearts. Men who did not follow their fathers in the factories or the post office. Black men who went off to college and pulled themselves up by degrees. Men who did not sink into despair, but lifted their families into new homes. Black men who survived the bullets, streets, and police. Black men who saw the horizon in the stars. They marched as if Garvey held out his hand, not to Ethiopia, but to our own hearts. Black hearts, now failing for unknown reasons. Why? Why do we die so young? Why are we not like our grandfathers sitting on the porch rocking away the years? 
Why are we not the black men returning from the wars and lifting our girlfriends up into wives again? Why do we date this early death? After all the exercise and pills, after the changing diet, why is there such a cruel hunger that appears and takes our years? Black men, my friends resting in their open coffins, waiting for someone to sing, Precious Lord, and take their hand. Black hands closing with so much love still left to give. that poem i love that poem for so many reasons it's a i love that it's about black men and we need to recognize that but of course health disparities are affecting us all black sure. women the right. mortality rate you know infant mortality how can this be but i'm so glad you wrote that poem yeah and you know that poem is very important i you know i wrote it back around maybe 2019 2020 so it's not a recent poem but what happened is a poem that when I wrote it, it was because I was, you know, losing some of my friends for various ailments and things of that sort. So it was that. And then, we, you know, we always have the police violence. So that's a part of it. But I think what makes the poem very important is the fact that if you're African-American in or out of the church, you know about Precious Lord. Okay. You know, you hear Precious Lord, I mean, all the time. Many people don't realize how that song comes to Thomas Dorsey. You know, Tommy Dorsey lost his wife. Okay. He was like performing, I think he might have been performing in maybe I've been in St. Louis and goes to Chicago. Anyway, he finds out that his wife has died giving birth. Okay. Yeah. And then what happened a few days later, his the baby dies. And so what happened, he buried his child and his wife together in the same coffin. Now, people say that many people felt that Thomas Dorsey, after going through that, would never compose anything again. But then he felt Precious Lord came to him, that that, 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 that was like a divine gift, you know. And so that was a thing where I, I felt this reference to Precious Lord in the poem and the title, you know, Black Men are Precious, has to be built on that tradition because you see exactly what, what Black men have suffered and lost to create that song, okay? And I think it's very, very important in terms of that reference. Hi, I'm Emma Jackson Ford. You've just listened to Black Book Talk on KBOO Portland. Before we start our next program, I want to remind you that this fall is a great time to become a member of KBOO. Show your support for Black Book Talk and for KBOO by becoming a member right now. Help us to reach our $55,000 fall membership drive goal. We are community funded, so we need your support to reach our goal. Just go to kboo.fm slash give or text KBOO to this number, 44321. Oh, my Take my hand, Russian Lord. 
Oh, oh.